Hey everyone, welcome to the 17th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is the 31st ranked player on the WTA Tour, Allison Risk Armitage. She's won three career WTA singles titles and has reached the fourth round of the Australian Open and the quarterfinals of Wimbledon, where she beat then world number one Ash Barty. On today's episode, we discuss her decision to skip college and go straight to the pros, why she has so much success on grass, and the importance of having a strong mental game. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Ali, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. It's great to have you on. And I've been uh, I've gotten some constructive criticism from my close friends that I now need to explain how I know the guest because I just I don't even explain how I know you or where I know you from. So for the listeners out there that don't know me or you, I think the first time we actually met was at my wedding. Is that I'm, I'm not wrong on that, am I? I think that is absolutely correct. However, you've been a myth for years and I've heard about you from your Hilton Head Island days when my sister trained in Hilton Head. And I think you guys sort of had a similar friend group. And then obviously, Stephen, my husband and one of your very good friends, I, I had heard about you so often from him. And then, yes, I think meeting you on your wedding day was the first our first interaction. So I think you just misspoke. You said myth, but you probably meant to say legend. Is that right? Well, yeah, that myth and legend. <laughs> I love it. So, so the first time we met was you were a guest of Stephen at my wedding, July 3rd, 2014. So we actually just had our eighth anniversary. And that's also your birthday, correct? My 32nd birthday on your anniversary. I, I, will, I will never forget that. And also another side note, I saw this this morning on Instagram. It's actually your anniversary today. It is. It's our third anniversary. Um, but Steve and I, we've been together for nine years. It actually might be closer to 10 at this point. It feels like a while, but we've been, <laughs> we've been so grateful to have so many um, awesome times together. Steven's actually able to travel with me quite a lot too on the road, which honestly is is definitely a godsend and makes makes things a lot easier. Except when I hear him from the stands and I double fall and I hear, <sighs> That is so funny and so typical of him. That does not surprise me at all. He just, he can't help himself. That's, the, the man has passion, if, if anything. So we are grateful that you're here on your anniversary. I don't know why, why you're talking to me on your anniversary, but we will take it. I'm free. <laughs> I love it. So, so back at my wedding then, you were 24 years old and you were already, I know you had come from Wimbledon to our wedding, I'm pretty sure. So you were already kind of a top 50 player then. And now you're still in the top, I think, 35. I think you're 31 right now. So for eight years, you've maintained that level. What do you attribute that to? Like, how, how have you been able to maintain such a high level through your early 30s now? That's a great question. I think first and foremost, um, I've been so fortunate in my career to always be surrounded by some pretty wonderful people. And I've had a handful of coaches in my career. This is my 13th year on tour. And I really have been blessed with truly remarkable people who have, you know, seen something in me when maybe others haven't, or maybe I haven't myself. And they've always been there to push me, to give me belief. And that goes for my husband, Stephen as well. And 
I just think that first and foremost has been huge. I think I was a little bit of a late bloomer in my career. Yes, like you say, at 24, I was about top 50 and I've been able to maintain that. But 24 is actually a little pretty late. I had turned pro when I was 18. So, you know, six years later and um, there we were. So I think maturity has been a big thing. I did reach my career high. Um, in 2019, which was only a few years ago. And I actually, I take a lot of pride in that because I think, again, with the people that I've had in my corner, we're always pushing to get better. And I think there's always room for things to get better. And so that's why I think a lot of my best times have come in the later stages of my career because I haven't settled or, or been satisfied with the success, quote unquote, that I was having at the time. And again, I still, I still think that the best is still yet to come just because I think emotionally it really took me a while to, to feel comfortable on tour, to have the belief I am a very... Uh, emotional person. So I can get down pretty easily. Um, I feel the losses. And I think to fully understand how to have success on tour, that's something that you just have to be willing to ride a little bit easier. And that didn't come naturally for me at the beginning. So I would say that maturity and um, just really good people around me would would be the, the answer to that. So I think it's interesting, uh, you know, I coach a lot of juniors now, mostly juniors, and they might be 16 years old and they're panicking that it all hasn't clicked. And then you're, you're, you're one of the best players in the world. And you're like, yeah, I think I, you know, maybe started peaking around age 29. Did you, did you still, did you have that issue as a player as well when you were younger? And then maybe when you went pro at 18, kind of going like, Hey, I'm 20 now. Like, why, why is this not clicking? Why am I not firing on all cylinders? Like, did you have that experience as well? Well, I think where that issue comes into play is when you start comparing yourself to your peers. And I think when you are in the juniors and you, uh, we, I'm speaking for on tour, actually, we all have, you know, this amount of talent, you know, in terms of hitting the ball. But the people that are really the best at the top, their minds are just, just a level above, in my opinion. I'd say top 10, they're just a level above. And so... I think from a junior perspective, when you begin to feel that way and um, that you haven't maybe reached your potential, it's purely because you're comparing yourself to people that are having success around you. And I was pretty sheltered growing up in Pittsburgh, to be honest. And I, I went to Hilton Head for a little bit of my junior career, my high school years, but I was very much in my bubble and I didn't really ever feel that way in particular in terms of things not firing or clicking because I really didn't know any better. I, I wasn't around other best players in the world or in the country. I would go to tournaments, yes, but I didn't personally know them, so I never really compared myself. I wouldn't say until I did turn professional at 18, and I I had Lauren Davis, I had Christina McHale, um, I had Shelby Rogers. We were all kind of in that pack. Granted, a couple of those are still younger than I am, but, you know, they have success. You think you should have success, and, you know, I think that's something that, again, maturity comes into play, and I think if you can have the focus that – the process, which I still struggle with, is what it's about. At the, end of at the end of the day, that really is 
that really is the only thing that you can control. And you might peak, you might peak next week. You might peak next month. You could peak in five years. You don't know. But if you keep putting in the work, I really believe that you won't be denied for it. So you mentioned, you know, kind of you went straight from juniors to pro tennis when you were 18. So kind of talk me through that decision. Like, how did you decide that you were ready for the tour and and what were the the factors that kind of led to that decision? To be fair, I actually didn't know if I was ready for the tour. I mean, I had been playing challenger events. I was ranked 220, 219 to be exact going into 2009 and I had always thought I'd follow in my sister's footsteps, play at Vanderbilt. The coach that she played under was the coach that was there recruiting me. Her doubles partner was going to be my assistant. So I felt very comfortable there. I did take a recruiting trip to Duke. I have to throw that in there because I know you obviously went to Duke. My husband did as well. And actually, after that recruiting trip, I was pretty convinced I was going to Duke because I thought this is the greatest thing that I've ever experienced in my life. I am going to have a blast here. But I went to Vanderbilt. Um, I felt extremely comfortable there. And I knew I was in good hands. Um, Not that I wouldn't have been elsewhere, but I Uh, My sister's experience spoke for itself. So I had chosen to go to Vanderbilt. I signed there. I had my roommate. I was two weeks before I was going to be a freshman. And I actually had a family friend from Hilton Head call me up. I was in our condo in Hilton Head, and he just randomly called. And I had practiced with him. He was you know, middle-aged, no children, huge tennis fan still one of my greatest friends to this day. And he said, Ali, I believe in you. If, if you choose to turn professional instead of going to Vanderbilt, I'll support you. And that really changed everything for me because I knew I wanted to try to play professional at some point, but I thought it would be after my four years at school. Just because we, my family really couldn't afford that. It was just too much of a financial commitment. So to have that kind of be taken out of the equation Um, I decided I'd go for it. And my family was entirely on board. I was probably the only one that was hesitant. And, you know, I felt a little, I felt comfort in the fact that if I wanted to go back to school one day, you know, whether I need to pay for it, whether I can just be an assistant and, and get some financial aid that way, I felt confident that I could make it happen if I chose later to do that route. So once you made that decision and you're out there on tour, and I think you just said you were in the low 200s, was there a period early on where you were like, oh man, I, I maybe I should have gone to school? Or were you just kind of like all in, like I jumped in, I'm in this, I can do it? Was there ever a period of doubt there? It was actually interesting because my the sponsor actually, he he paid for my sister to travel with me for my first five years as well, which was a huge godsend because uh, I didn't really travel a lot growing up. We just couldn't financially do it. So I really didn't play junior events or anything. So um, yeah, to be fair, I was, I was very lucky because my sister did travel with me for the first five years of me being on tour. So I was very comfortable from that perspective. And my sister and I, um, she helped me get to, I was about 105 within the first year and a half, which is kind of the barometer that you want to be tracking at. And I was so excited. I was thinking I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm, you know, on the right track. And it was in that moment 
of just crossing over to top 100 that I literally went back to about 180 because I was thinking about that moment too much. And I never really thought in the sense that I wish I had gone to college. It was more that I wish I had handled that moment a little bit better. Um, I was pretty much all, I was pretty much all in. Um, it took me, I'd say actually about another year, year and a half to, to crack the top hundred. So it wasn't an immediately, uh, I wasn't immediately soaring, uh, after that, just because emotionally I, I got a little bit too invested, um, instead of thinking about, about the process and what I needed to do, um, on a daily basis. So I was very fortunate that I, I never look back. And there are moments in my career to this day where I've, I'll think to myself, there will just be a situation that happened. Maybe it involves a group of people or something where I'm not just by myself being an individual. And I'm like, thank God I didn't go to college because my teammates would have hated me. So I think, um, granted, the tour has shaped me into being, you know, an individual, I would say. So I'm, I'm very satisfied with what's turned out to be. <laughs> One one of my uh, one of my friends he coaches NC State. His name's Kyle Spencer, and he was talking about the skill that players need to learn, which is like learning how to be yourself in a new, challenging situation. So for you, maybe cracking the top hundred, or the first time you got seated at a slam, or the first time you reached the quarters of a slam. Like, how do you feel comfortable in those moments? Is that a challenge that you face as a player, or? when you were kind of going into these new situations, have you always kind of felt like, I know who I am, I know my game, I belong here? Uh, how, how do you feel in those new situations? Yeah, and I think that's actually something that's held me back um, in my career, just because I am highly analytical and I I analyze situations. I, I analyze a lot. And I think that prohibits me from just being free and being able to play. And I think, again, like I said, I players that's what what they do the best and it's something that I continue to strive to get better at least for the remaining time that I I, I choose to do this I'm trying to be better at that and just let things go a little bit and not put as much emphasis on them or think about them or really anything um, anything like you say that's new just trying to play my game be who I want to be on the court and owning whatever that is. You spoke earlier, you said that the top players are kind of a level above mentally and you're kind of talking about that's a, that's a challenge for you. How much time in your training, what percentage of your time do you think you spend working on just the mental side of the game? Definitely not enough. And um, I think it's a very, um, for me, it's a very sensitive thing. I think it's very cyclical for me and that's where I have to be much more consistent. Um, I think it needs to be a daily practice. I think that's something that I do well in terms of a daily practice of trying to be better and being aware of the things that can be a problem for me and trying to handle them differently. But I think in terms of actually speaking to someone on a, on a weekly basis, I think daily would probably be challenging, but on a on a weekly basis, I don't do that very well. I've worked with multiple people in my career, um, whether they be sports psychologists, mental coaches, or just life coaches, because I feel like a lot of things that I struggle with on the court are actually things that are just 
daily life for me. So there are things that I can be better at in all areas of my life. But that's why it's easy for me to work on it myself as well, because it happens to me in every situation in, a, in my daily life. So, and I, I actually think it'd be interesting. I've, I, I've actually worked with a lady that worked with Simona Halep. And I think Halep out of all the players on tour has done this so well over her career, just because she doesn't, she won't hit you off the court. She won't, you know, hit a ton, you know, a ton of aces, but she is there point in point out, which I think is just so remarkable. And she has worked with this one particular lady for years. And I think it's a testament to how important having someone is. Thanks for sharing that. I think there's a lot of, I know for sure the juniors I work with, they think they are the one person in the world who struggles with off-court stuff or, you know, especially in this case, on-court stuff. Like, oh my God, I'm the only one who gets so nervous or I have this thing that I struggle with. And, you know, I'll bet you Allie Risk has it all figured out. Look at her. She's 31 in the world. Like she's probably perfect and, you know, whatnot. And I, I really appreciate you sharing that because I think that's just a a misconception people have that everyone above them who's a better player has it all figured out and they always had it all figured out. And I'm just, I found in my experience that it's just certainly not the case. That's right. And I think certain people, um, we all have the capability to do it. I think that um, certain people are just able to do it better. And that's why we have to keep working, you know, towards making it better. And it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to not have it perfect. But as long as you keep working on it and putting in the effort, um, that's all that that you can ask of yourself really. So I want to switch it up a little bit to lighter, uh, a, light, a lighter <laughs> topic here, but we're, we're, we're talking two year, uh, two weeks after Wimbledon and you had another typical great grass court season. Um, that's a historical thing for you. We go to the grass courts and I start following your results and I'm like, all right, I'm expecting a lot of W's here. What is it about the grass that suits your game so well? Yeah, I think, um, well, I, especially back in the, the court played a little quicker back when I first started and I had a bunch of my success, you know, in the early years of my um, career on grass. And I think it was because I, I hit a flat ball. I looked to finish points at the net and I do move well on the surface where it's maybe not a natural thing for, for people to feel good moving on the grass just because it's different. So um, I think when you combine those factors, it makes for, you know, a good grass court player. I do think, you know, in the last few years, obviously it has slowed down a little bit. Um, obviously it's still quick, but um, it has changed over the years. And yeah, I still love playing on it. I wish I got a few more W's this year. It was actually a tough season for me this year, I, I must say, but I, I did enjoy it. It's always so hard for me to leave London. Steve and I want to move there. We love it so much. <laughs> You're, you're moving to Charleston, just for the record. That's so funny. I actually posed this question to Stephen, and I said, "Where, if you had to go this second and move for the rest of your life, where would you choose? Charleston, London, or we sometimes say the mountains because we also love the mountains. And, you know, he couldn't give me an answer. And I'm like, that's not how this game is played. Like, I need an answer now so we can narrow down some choices here. But... Um, we do love, we love Charleston, of course, as well. So 
help me out here because I'm not playing on tour at the moment. So hard courts are slower than grass, but are from tournament to tournament, how different are the hard court surfaces? Are there some tournaments that are known to be very quick and slick and then some are like super gritty and slow? Is, is that the case or, or how does that work? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, we have, I mean, I think most infamous, infamously is Indian Wells um, being the, you know, the slowest hard court that we play on. And I must say, I played on a hard court in Potoro, Slovenia last fall. And that soccer was slow as molasses and it took me right back to India Wells. <laughs> but actually over the years, I've, I've started to really enjoy them because it, I couldn't crack an egg on those surfaces before and I didn't even know how to play on it. But, you know, literally 10 years into my career now, well, now 13, I feel like, okay, like maybe I can get a couple wins. <laughs> um, but for the heart or for the fast surfaces, obviously you have the grass, I, the China, the tournaments that were in Asia had always been historically very quick. Japan and China always had very quick courts, which is why I was probably one of the few players that actually enjoyed going, you know, across the world and doing that long trip. But I enjoyed it because the courts were so quick. So I was sad when we no longer had many tournaments over there. But um, yeah, there are definitely courts that are known to be quicker, slower, and everything in between. <laughs> How how do you alter your tactics? So if you, you're going to Indian Wells and you go, okay, these courts are like mud. Like the ball is going to be sitting up. It's going to be slower. Does that greatly affect your strategy going in? Or do you just kind of go into a surface and kind of go, this is who I am. This is what I do well. I'm going to try to do that and see how it works. Well, I think ultimately I'm trying to always at the end of the day, play the same way with a few minor adjustments. And I think court positioning for me is one from, you know, hard to, or from slow to fast. I think my positioning on a return is a little bit different. And I think on a slow surface, which is what I never really understood in the past was, yes, I play an aggressive style of play, but I'm going to have to work a little bit harder and I'm going to have to put in a little bit more work at those tournaments and it's going to be a little bit tougher, a little bit more fatigue, uh, a little bit more fatiguing, but that's what's going to ultimately uh, get me the result that I want. So I think I never really understood that I was going to have to make, obviously you would think, okay, I have to make a few more balls, but I never understood how to do it, um, what to look for. And that has definitely helped me when I'm playing on the slower surfaces now. So I'm going to ask you another question about tactics. And as far as, I'm not aware of any other top 100 WTA players listening to my podcast, so don't worry that you're giving up like your secrets. <laughs> um, but but my but my question is, you know, so if you slightly tweak your tactics based on the surface, one question that always comes up is there's a lot of people who think the score should have a huge impact on what you're doing. So maybe if it's 30 all or later in the game and it's tight, oh, you're supposed to either play more aggressively or play more conservatively, how much does the score in a match factor into what you do tactically? Well, I think it also depends on who you're playing. I think if you, you know, if I'm, if I play my style of game against a certain player who maybe makes a lot more balls, I feel a little bit more comfortable because I can get into the point. I'm going to find a shot that I can be aggressive on and it's just going to unfold in, you know, my, the way that I want it to. Whereas if you play someone like an Osaka or you know, Madison Keys who hits a bigger ball, 
the way that I play, I'm probably going to have to be a little bit more aggressive in certain points um, of a game. And that's just something that you kind of have to have a read on and, and, and go with your, your gut on. But um, that definitely comes into play. And I, I actually, I do, I have hired actually for the last few years an anal, uh, analytics company who gives me a game plan and really some, I, I get some very interesting stats from them on my opponents. And I'm always kind of aware of the important things in those moments. And I think that they, they have really helped me a lot as well. Do you use those analytics to self-scout yourself as well? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's been, been a huge advantage, um, actually, because my um, coach Tom really does love information. And I personally, you know, if he tells me something, I love to have it backed up by, um, the reports just because, oh, okay, like that really is a thing, the percentages or, you know, you're winning X amount this way. I, I love seeing that and I'm, I can really relate to it um, and attach myself to it. So we definitely use it in that way. And um, even something after, after Wimbledon, um, he ran my reports to see, um, we've tweaked a few things in my, my strokes on my serve and he wanted to see if the ball speed has increased on all my shots since January when we really put in work in the off season. And so it's really cool to kind of see that your work is also translating and you're getting something back from it. So you said your coach Tom is always kind of seeking information and we had about 17 technical difficulties starting this podcast, but, but you were, you were saying that he, um, he is a, follower of Stokey Tennis Instagram and that in that he was seeking information can you share with everyone the drill that you guys have been doing yes and I shouldn't even I don't even know if he's following you or stalking you it's one of the two I don't know if he's a legit follower or if he just clicked on your profile and jacks your drills but with that being said we were and he didn't even I mean he didn't know I guess that I was even that close with you or Steven was that close to you. I'm not even sure. So it was totally random. We didn't force it upon him. But um, he, he ran a drill today um, just with you're in the center of the court and you hit up the middle for 30 seconds and you see how many balls you can get in the 30 seconds. And, of course, we've done that drill before for the tempo drill, but we've always done it for um, 60 seconds. And we like this a little bit more because you can keep your technique, you can keep, you can just do it more solid and sustain it for that period of time. Whereas a minute's a little long, you can kind of lose your technique. So I think it was a success. I give it an A plus, um, not as it's you, John, but it was a really good drill. We got 25 balls in 30 seconds. If someone wants to run with that and try to beat it, who's listening to the podcast, go for it, tag me, let me know. <laughs> I'm 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 dying to know. I the only other person like maybe if Jesse Pagula is still listening to this, maybe she can get 26. Yes, well, I'd love to do it with Jesse. Oh yes, we all practice with each other, and we're like we we well, I think Jesse hits a bigger ball personally, but I think that both of us, with how flat we hit and how fast, um, I think we could really get some good numbers. So um, we, we might we might do that. Jesse commented on one of my. Instagram post and I told her I'm having a, a makeshift double school in the off season that I was trying to get her down. You need to come visit in Charleston and we'll do a little uh we'll do a little 30 second hit and see what you guys can get. Instagram live. 
That would be awesome. I would love that. All right. So we're going to finish up uh, with Instagram questions. These are from followers who some of these are softballs. Some of these are actual real questions. I'll try to start with the softballs. So here, the first one's a Pittsburgh question. Oh, uh, they they, they want to know. I don't even know if this is a typo or if this is how you actually say it, but Pramanti Brothers sandwich or a Pamela's hotcake? Wow. Oh, I feel so not Pittsburgh by not knowing what a Pamela's hotcake is. I'm going to have to Google that. So I have to go Pramanti sandwich. I actually do really love a Pramanti sandwich, especially, especially if you're uh, watching a baseball uh, uh, baseball game at PNC Park. What, what What is it, by the way? Is that like a... Well, it's our our famous sandwich in Pittsburgh. And what makes it so unique is they actually put French fries on the sandwich. So it's just kind of a unique touch. And it's just absolutely loaded. It's like a typical sandwich, but just loaded to the gills and really extravagant. All right. <laughs> you, you had me at French fries. Um, <laughs> all right. Favorite location to play on tour? Wimbledon, hands down, is my favorite location to play on tour. I actually also would have to say a close second would be Rome because it's the site there is absolutely beautiful and obviously the city is as well. And my third favorite would have to be Paris. Interesting. What's your favorite aspect of being a professional player? It's a great question. Um, well, I think the one that's on the surface, I mean, I love to travel and I love to see different places and um get to experience them especially with my husband traveling as well it makes for an awesome time we love to eat so we always try different restaurants but i think the one thing that i would say that's maybe not as obvious would just be the fact that you can always get better in tennis and there's no ceiling for you and you can continue to try to develop and just be better than you were yesterday Last real question here. What is your best advice to a junior player or even like a recreational adult? If you could only give them one simple tip and you go, hey, this is the the quickest, easiest way that you can make a little jump in your singles game. What advice would you give that player? Wow. What a question, right? One thing. Uh, one thing. I think I can speak to the juniors um, just because I lived that. And so I think the one thing I would say is to put in put in the time and the work each day. And I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but I believe that you won't be denied if you can keep developing and putting in just a little bit more effort and more effort each day. And eventually it will fall in your favor. Um, what, what tournaments do you have coming up? Well, I'm getting ready for the U.S. Open Series, so I leave next Thursday for San Jose, and I'll play San Jose, Toronto, Cincinnati U.S. Open. I love it. I have a couple girls that are trying to get into juniors at U.S. Open, so hopefully I will see you up in New York. Oh, that would be amazing. Oh, that would yeah. let us know. Yeah, I, I, I would, I'm really hoping they get in. So hopefully we see you up there. If not, we'll all be following you online and, and hoping you're doing well. But um, thanks again for joining. That was great. Uh, thanks so much, John. Tell the family hello. All right, I want to thank Allie for joining us today and putting up with the technical difficulties that we had earlier. She shared a lot of cool aspects about her journey to becoming one of the best players in the world. The one thing I kind of liked the most was just our topic of the difference between a grass court and a hard court, and even the differences between the hard courts. So a faster surface might promote a more aggressive style of play to be successful, 
Whereas a slower hard court, you might need to be a little more patient, make a few more balls and work a little harder. So just be aware that every surface you play on each day might be a little different. And so you might need to make a little adjustment and play a little differently to have more success. So next time you get out on the court, pay attention to the surface, see how the ball is bouncing on that surface, and then try to choose a more optimal game style for your competition. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.